Hey guys, uh, welcome to another episode of Heart Success Podcast. This is our fourth and final episode in the cardio-oncology series, or the onco-cardiology series, as some would like to call it. Today's uh, episode is really going to focus on cardiotoxicities, cardiomyopathies, some of these other cardiac manifestations of cancer therapies. To discuss this topic with us, we have a really a, a, a great guest, Dr. Sherry Ann Brown. Dr. Brown received her medical and graduate training MD-PhD at the University of Connecticut, following which she completed her internal medicine residency and fellowship in cardiovascular diseases at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. While at the Mayo Clinic, she trained in the Elite Clinician Investigator Program. Uh, she's board certified in internal medicine and cardiovascular diseases with specialties in cardio-oncology and preventive cardiology with particular interest in the overlap. I mean, she has quite an impressive CV, you know, as uh, during her medical training, she was part of the selective NIH-funded medical scientist training program. She's a poet. She's a researcher. Uh, she's an MD-PhD. And her research interests lie in preventive cardio-oncology, precision cardio-oncology, and, and has uh, published several high-impact factor papers in this field. She was still at the Mayo Clinic uh, at the time of recording this episode, following which she moved to the Medical College of Wisconsin. She currently holds a faculty position at the Medical College of Wisconsin and is their Director of Cardio-Oncology Program and Assistant Professor of Medicine. Welcome to Heart Success, Dr. Brown. Um, can I call you Sherry? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Before we start talking about the topic at hand, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about you and a little bit about you outside of work. Sure. That's always a great question because all of us are always on the quest for a great work-life balance and finding meaning in our lives professionally and otherwise. One of the things that I absolutely love to do is write and perform poetry. I started doing that when I was about 15 years old, and I've kept it up over the years. And I find that writing poems about medicine, science, my experiences as a physician really helps me to process some of the experiences we have in medicine. And the biggest part of it for me is seeing that when other people do it, it reaches them too. And so we all get to share the experience together. Of course, doing other things such as exercise, nurturing relationships, and so on, all helps us with the work-life balance, too. And any advice for fellows interested in cardiology or other medical providers who want to get more information, want to gain expertise on this topic of cardio-oncology? Sure. Another great question. So I first became interested and involved in cardio-oncology when I was a medical student more than 10 years ago, which was unusual because most people weren't yet aware of the field. For me, I saw an email about a pilot project for research, and I thought, you know, I always fancied this idea that I could help cure or help some kind of cancer being remission, but I always felt most drawn to the physiology of the heart. And so I thought, wouldn't it be great if I helped to protect the heart of those patients who are undergoing their therapies for cancer? And I knew that I wanted prevention of heart disease to be a huge foundation for my career. And so my goal is most of all to help prevent and protect the heart in cardio-oncology. And so I would encourage anyone in medical school, residency, fellowship, early career, or even mid or late career, 
if there's interest in engaging more in cardio-oncology, to reach out to folks at your institution who may see those patients, whether there's a cardio-oncology program or whether they're seen in heart failure or other areas of the institution. And also consider the national societies that have cardio-oncology sections and parts of the meetings. And then also, if you're on Twitter, there's a huge cardiology community. And the hashtag for cardiology, cardio-oncology will be hashtag cardio-onc. That's true. I've been following a lot of the cardio-oncology literature on Twitter, actually. So, a great resource. Cardio-oncology is really everywhere and, and uh, has a strong presence on social media as well. All the, we have a new cardio-oncology journal by Jack that was started just a few months ago. So it's a field that's rapidly growing. Uh, is it fair to say that the interest has increased more from the last few months, two years? Certainly. I would say the interest is exponentially increasing. I think a part of it is the fact that more, more of us are becoming involved, more of us are becoming aware. And the more of us that are engaged, the more we spread it too, because we're excited and passionate about the field. Having formal endorsement from the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association makes a big difference. The American College of Cardiology has a cardio-oncology section that is helping to lead the charge forward in this emerging subspecialty. The American Heart Association has now also created a committee for cardio-oncology, a national group, a national committee, and has also announced an RFA for funding in cardio-oncology that will be starting in the spring. And so I think that the more local, regional, national interests and collaborations, and also international, the more that we have, the further we're going as a field. I definitely think that social media and other ways of spreading the news that we didn't used to have five or 10 years ago are making a difference. But perhaps the two biggest things might be the fact that with the improvement in diagnosis and detection and treatment of cancers in oncology, we have tons and tons of survivors, more than we ever had before, which is fantastic. What that means is that now when someone has cancer, much of the time, they become survivors who have chronic conditions, and those chronic conditions will include risk factors for heart disease and lead to the development of heart disease too. Not only because of the same risk in the general population, but risk from the cancer, having the cancers themselves and the therapies for them. And so the leading cause of mortality in patients who've had cancer for survivors is heart disease. Mm-hmm. And the other reason is there's so many drugs oncology being developed at such a rapid pace, and many of those drugs have cardiovascular side effects. And so for both of those reasons combined, the field is burgeoning. No, that's very true. As a cardio-oncologist, what is your role in the management of cancer and cardiovascular disease in these patients? Sure. So our role, I'd like to think, is along the entire spectrum of the patient's condition. And so once someone is diagnosed with cancer, through the rest of their lifetime, there is a role for the cardio-oncologist. Before therapy, our role is really to help patients understand their risk for heart disease, albeit not the main thing in their mind at the moment if they don't have intermediate or high risk for heart disease or if they don't have heart disease already. But making sure that they're aware there's a risk and that's why we might make certain recommendations to protect their heart even before they start therapy if that's possible. Whether that's medication such as 
potentially considering the clinical utility of ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, beta blockers, statins, or dextroxone, which isn't a drug that most cardiologists would necessarily use, but we can recommend if we think the patient might be high risk. And then also, there's data showing or suggesting that a high level of physical activity and a great diet can be helpful too going into therapy. And so making sure that both the patients and the healthcare team are aware and having everyone know that we're available. Then once they're undergoing therapy, helping with a monitoring and screening plan and ensuring also that if any symptoms arise, we can contribute to how those are evaluated. Then once therapy is completed, evaluating the patient as a survivor and helping them know their long-term risk in that heart disease is the number one cause of death now that they've conquered the cancer and are in remission. And so knowing that they need to have monitoring for the cancer itself, but also monitoring for the heart, and if any dysfunction arises regarding the heart, we're there to assist, of course. So that's really closely following these patients and getting engaged in the overall management of these patients, you know, during and after cancer therapy is completed. Is there an official diagnosis for patients who develop cardiomyopathy as a result of chemotherapy? How do you define chemotherapy-induced cardiomyopathy? Yes, and so cardiotoxicity looks in so many ways it can be defined. And so now we... Expand the word to cardiovascular toxicity even. And some might think that we should add heme as part of the word because that's a large part of what cardio-oncology is. And so for cardiovascular toxicity, we're thinking about injury that can happen to various parts of the cardiovascular system. So whether that's the conduction system of the heart or the myocardium, the pericardium, the valve, the coronary vessels, or whether it's in the periphery for pulmonary hypertension, systemic hypertension, vasculitis, and so on. And there's so many different ways in which cardiovascular toxicity can manifest. The most common way that might be most relevant to folks who might be listening right now would be when we're thinking about cardiotoxicity regarding heart failure, say, from anthracycline therapy. And so there have been multiple definitions over the years, and one that is Perhaps among the most embraced is from the American Society of Echocardiography, where cardiotoxicity in this setting is defined as a decline in the left ventricular ejection fraction of more than 10% to an absolute number of less than 53%. And of course, there are some folks around the country who are strain aficionados and some that are not. And for those of us who might use strain, then we look at at least a three-unit change in the strain. But we get more concerned about it when the absolute number in the end is less than normal. Thank you for that, Sherry. So one aspect of defining cardiotoxicity is a reduction in LV ejection fraction or a drop in strain. What are the other categories of cardiotoxicity or cardiovascular toxicity? Because we know it goes beyond just LVEF drops, including cardiac arrhythmias, pericardial involvement, cardiac ischemia, pulmonary hypertension. Yes, and that's a big one. Of course, we know that over the years, there have been the publications and discussions regarding type 1, type 2 cardiotoxicity, for example, 
which had initially been created to help oncologists determine what to expect from the adverse effects regarding the heart. And over the years, as the drugs keep expanding and the cardiovascular effects keep expanding, then we wonder how we really should be categorizing cardiovascular toxicity and whether we need new ways about thinking about those classifications as well. And so you're absolutely right. We tend to think about the fact that we have cardiovascular toxicity that can be ischemia, that can be arrhythmia, that can be heart failure, we can have restrictive cardiomyopathy or non-restrictive cardiomyopathy, can be dilated cardiomyopathy, we can have the valves involved. And so the categories now are moving more towards the effect that we see on the cardiovascular system rather than simply calling it one type or the other. I think either categorization system can be useful based on what we're really discussing. And so it's such a great time for all of us to be involved, to be engaged, to be part of a conversation because we're helping to create this field for the best of our patients. Yeah. When you are seeing these patients in your clinic, uh, like you said, maybe even before or during uh, their treatment, what what different type of tests uh, do you look at in these patients? Are there certain biomarkers that you're following in these patients? What are the cardiac testing, I would say, that, that we need to be aware of? That's sure. Right. It's so great that we have different testing mechanisms in our armamentarium. When we think about the sort of therapies patients have, we can think about traditional chemotherapies that would include anthracycline. We can think about targeted ter- therapies that would include the vascular endothelial. We can think about targeted therapies, and then we can also think about immunotherapies and think about radiation, for example. And each of those will help determine what the testing method is. And so with the new immune checkpoint inhibitors that are associating with often fulminant myocarditis, which was thought to be rare, but we're seeing it more and more, there isn't really a great screening mechanism that always works. And there also isn't a great testing mechanism to use up front. But once there's suspicion for myocarditis, and we have to have a high level of suspicion, then starting with the EKG, the troponin, and possibly BNP can be useful, but those can be negative. And so if we really think the patient might have myocarditis, then we go to a cardiac MRI. And then if we're really thinking this is what it is, then we'll need a biopsy to confirm the diagnosis. And so that's just one example of a testing mechanism and how that's helpful to us. And it's so great to have a collaboration between cardiology and oncology in order to achieve that. Of course, the stalwart of our field would be the echocardiogram for looking at the left ventricular ejection fraction. And then more recently, looking at some new data for strain. And then also with radionuclide imaging with MUGA, if the echo is technically difficult or not available, then we would go to the MUGA to look at the EF. But we recognize that there are so many different forms of cardiovascular toxicity now, and so we can't rely only on the echo and the MUGA. We also have to expand to the CT, the MRI, and so on. Because we get to see more of what we need, given that there's such a variety of manifestation of toxicity. Yeah. Maybe we can start talking about some of the specific chemotherapy drug classes and related cardiotoxicities. I think it would be most apt to start with anthracyclines and HER2 blockers, since a large majority of the cardiotoxicity research or cardio-oncology research has also occurred for these two drug classes. 
and in their treatment of breast cancers? So anthracitic ventricizumab can have various forms of cardiovascular toxicity, and of course the most common being left ventricular ejection fraction decline. And anthracyclines are the ones that have been studied most. They've been around for such a long time, and they're used for a variety of cancers, such as breast, gynecologic, sarcoma, lymphoma, and the most common one that we're all aware of being Dr. Rubicin. And the mechanisms of the toxicity have been studied much over the years. It can include apoptosis, DNA breaks. It was initially thought to be just one or two mechanisms, but it turns out that there are quite several. And in the end, it leads to necrosis, apoptosis of the cardiac myocytes and leads to injury of the myocardium overall that eventually causes a declining ejection fraction. There are several processes involved. There are oxygen-free radicals, peroxidation of lipids in the membrane of the myocardial mitochondria, and all of this leads to suppression of DNA, RNA proteins, And there have been lots of different studies, even using precision medicine, to look at some of the changes with gene expression profiles to help us determine the pathophysiology even more and not just understand it, but how to prevent it. And so there are studies even looking at genomic variants to suggest who might be most at risk because of the changes in the single nucleotide polymorphism for some of these proteins that are involved in the process along the pathophysiological pathway. There's alteration in adenocyclase activity, disrupted calcium homeostasis. So many things are involved, and the more cumulative dose of anthracycline, the more injury occurs. Mm-hmm. And with the anthracycline-associated toxicity, is it usually acute or subacute chronic? When do we expect the toxicity that, uh, to, to manifest in these patients? That's right. You can have it at different stages. You can have it acutely within the first week or so after therapy, and that happens about less than 1% of the time, and that's usually a transient decline in the myocardial contractility. Usually, it's even immediately after the infusion, and that tends to be more reversible. And so that's why sometimes when we talk about type 1 and type 2, we have to recognize that there's some caveats because generally, type 1 might be thought to be reversible cardiotoxicity, which is where anthracycline falls, and type 2 might be thought to be more reversible, which is where trastuzumab falls. But if you have acute cardiotoxicity immediately after infusion with anthracycline, that can generally tend to be reversible. You can have early onset, chronic, or subacute cardiotoxicity at about 1.6 to 2.1% of the time. And that can happen during therapy or even within the first year after treatment. And in adults, that manifests as dilated cardiomyopathy, and that can be progressive. What we see, though, most of the time is late onset and what could be thought of as chronic progressive cardiotoxicity. And maybe 1.65% of the time, but we all know that the first time we get exposed to cardio-oncology over the years, often is when we see that patient, that woman, who had breast cancer maybe 20 years ago and received anthracycline therapy, and now she's on our service with heart failure that is thought to be due to the Dr. Rubicin. And so that late-onset cardiotoxicity from anthracycline can occur at least a year after completion of therapy. Oftentimes, we'll see it 10 to 20 years after therapy. With trastuzumab, we usually see it sooner. We usually see it within a year or so, 
And that tends indeed to be more reversible. That's great. The one thing I've noticed in some of the late presentations uh, among patients who receive prior anthracyclines or HER2 blockers is the presence of biventricular cardiomyopathy. Especially some of these advanced patients don't just have isolated LV dysfunction, commonly have RV dysfunction that is quite significant. And that can complicate the decision for durable support uh, therapies especially because LVAD can be high risk in certain cases. And transplant's not always an option. Several programs have restrictions on when you can transplant cancer patients. Particularly, I know several programs will have a five-year hold period until cancer is has been in remission. So it is difficult in some cases to really have durable support options among patients with chemotherapy-induced cardiomyopathy. There are some programs that will consider patients with prostate cancer, skin cancers are a lot sooner than five years. And there are other programs that are looking at the type of cancers when it comes to solid organ tumors and trying to figure out if there is a period probably between two and five years when it is appropriate to move forward with with heart transplantation or organ transplantation. This remains an area of active research and as we gain more experience, we learn more about recurrence of cancer among these patients that get organ transplants because, as we know, immunosuppression can play a role. So just coming back to uh, talking about anthracyclines. Is there a way to maybe prevent anthracycline-induced toxicity? And like you said, you know, higher doses, maybe more heart failure, more cardiotoxicity. How, what is your approach usually uh, for patients on anthracycline? So with most patients, the approach is to think about the dose that would typically be used and the dose that they may need and think about whether they've had anthracycline therapy in the past. Remembering that the cumulative dose makes a big difference. And so the dose might be to be adjusted if they've had a cumulative dose in the past that is nearing the threshold. In addition, we think about patient characteristics such as age, if the patients are much younger or much older, that can make a difference. If they're under 15 years old or over 60 to 65 years old, or if they're female, the risk is higher. The biggest risk often comes with known risk factors for cardiovascular disease, such as diabetes, hypertension, or if the patient has cardiovascular disease to begin with, whether that's a depressed EF at baseline or whether that's coronary artery disease at baseline. And so we make sure that they have optimal medication therapy, as well as being aware of the risk and optimizing their lifestyle if possible and making sure that we do monitoring and surveillance to try to detect if there are any changes we're seeing in advance of left ventricular ejection fraction decline. There are drugs that we talked about earlier that could be used, dextrozoxane most recently was shown to be useful in a study where patients had baseline low EF, dextrozoxane was protective when they needed to undergo anthracycline therapy. And so that's certainly one way to consider preventing cardiotoxicity. And of course, the other drugs like ACE inhibitors, ARBs, beta blockers that we've talked about, studies are ongoing. There hasn't really been a large randomized clinical trial to show that these drugs make a huge difference in protecting the heart from EF decline. But there have been several studies over the years that have shown a signal that that can be helpful. 
Most recently, there was a meta-analysis suggesting that overall there is improvement with these drugs. But again, we do need large randomized clinical trials to be able to say definitively we must use these. In our practice, generally, many of us use the drugs and we hope that they're providing some benefit to our patients. In addition, I should add that the oncologist can determine the way they deliver the drugs, whether it's using liposomal preparations of dendrocycline or using continuous infusion over bolus infusion, for example, and making sure that trastuzumab and anthracycline aren't administered concurrently. Uh, no, that's those are excellent points, and and like you said, you know, there's definitely a role for neurohormonal blockade agents, but but we need more data. Now, there's a lot of chemotherapy agents. You know, I thought maybe we'd focus on some of the more common, commonly used. Any other agents um, that, like we said, you know, people involved, people cardiologists or people in, dealing with cardiac patients maybe should know about. Yes. Yeah, so there's several drugs that are being used. We talked about traditional chemotherapies, and we mentioned targeted therapies, immunotherapies. We talked a bit about immunotherapy, so perhaps we could talk now a bit about the targeted therapies. Of course, trastuzumab is a form of targeted therapy as a HER2 blocker or HER2 inhibitor. And there are others such as lots of different tyrosine kinase inhibitors in addition to trastuzumab, such as bevacizumab and various VEGF inhibitors such as sinitinib, sorafenib, and so on. And with bevacizumab, sinitinib, sorafenib, for those drugs, the most common adverse effect we'll see is hypertension. And there's been a lot of thought going into how to best treat those patients that develop hypertension. Of course, the drugs can also cause cardiomyopathy, but hypertension is more common. A recent study, two recent studies actually, try to look at the drugs that are best for these patients when hypertension is induced. And one study found that it seemed that perhaps calcium channel blockers and diuretics were more efficacious than any other kind of drug, such as an ACE inhibitor. The other study found that ACE inhibitors, ARBs, mineral aldosterone blockers were more helpful, it seemed, than all the other drugs. And so what we see is that depending on the study design, the study population, the way the question is asked, we can get different results. For another study, when there was severe hypertension, mifedipine was most helpful in getting the blood pressure down. And so generally the consensus is that it's not really clear which drugs are the best class to recommend for hypertension that's induced. And so using calcium channel blockers, diuretic ACE inhibitors, would all be thought to be reasonable ways to go. And that's one example. Rarely you can have from sinitinib, serafinib, or these other drugs, you can have accelerated atherosclerosis. From some of the TKIs, you can have arterial thromboembolism. You can have various manifestations of toxicity in addition to cardiomyopathy. Yeah. How often do you typically see these patients in office? I'm sure it's in and, uh, you know, are there prognostic markers that you use in these patients? Much of the time we think about whether ECG, troponin, BNP might be helpful. It all depends on the drug. And so if patients are being treated with antistatins or trastuzumab, then troponin, BNP might be helpful at baseline. Echo for sure. And ECG is always helpful to get. 
if they've been treated with uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors, like we talked about, we can get those, knowing that even if they're negative when patients have symptoms, it doesn't mean they don't have myocarditis. For VEGF inhibitors, then we also want to look at, it would be reasonable to also check those at baseline, given that any of those things can manifest as toxicity, but we also want to screen more frequently because for VEGF inhibitors and for immune checkpoint inhibitors, the toxicity is usually seen within the first 30 to 35 days. And so we want to do screening more frequently in the first week and every week thereafter for the first month or so to be sure that we would catch anything up front that might be occurring. And so the biggest thing with prognostication of cardiovascular toxicity is thinking about the drug that's being used. Because the drug that's being used will determine when cardiotoxicity might occur, how likely it is to occur, and what might need to be done when it does occur. And so for cardiomyopathy, we did talk about the anthracyclines and early, late, or even later. And we talked about we can potentially use troponin, we can use the echo, and again, recognizing that some folks are fans of strain, some aren't, but there's a trial going on currently, the support trial, looking at whether global longitudinal strain is indeed helpful for prognostication in these patients. Some of us are using strain currently, as I described, and hopefully we'll get even better data to support some potential clinical utility for strain in prognostication for cardiotoxicity. Yeah, absolutely. There seems to be a role for strain in early detection of, of cardiovascular disease in these patients and then, then certainly following them serially for changes while they're undergoing therapy. When it comes to using certain medications and doses of these neurohormonal blockade agents, be it ARBs, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, is there any role for increasing doses over time? Secondly, is there any data for using Entresto in these patients instead of the SNR? Great question. We tend to think of starting low, going slow. So start low, go slow. And so if we're using, for example, carbetalol, maybe starting at 3.125 for the number in the dose and then up titrating as tolerated, if we're using lysinopril, then also starting at a low dose, depending on what the patient's needs are, whether it's 2.5 or 5, and tolerating upside treating as tolerable. And we're looking at heart rate, looking at blood pressure, checking for symptoms, lightheadedness, hypotension. And so because of the combination of drugs some patients are on, they're not able to tolerate high doses of the medication. Sometimes they can't tolerate more than one. And so we might often start with one and then either add the second at a low dose as well or see if we can up-titrate one of those drugs if they're not able to tolerate having both and up-titrating both. And so close follow-up is needed. But at the same time, because we're in a team, you can have the cardio oncologist make those recommendations and have close communication with the oncologist's primary care provider so that the whole team can be involved in that up-titration, so that it doesn't necessarily mean the cardio oncologist must be the one to do the up-titration. They can, 
but they can also partner with primary care to have that done, especially when patients are local or even if they're far away because then you're not really not able to do the titration. And so that's a great point to make. And sometimes patients will have to go down on the drugs over time. What we don't want to do, though, is necessarily stop the drugs because oftentimes when we stop the drugs once the ejection fraction has normalized, then we find that it didn't quite normalize. It was in remission. And so most often patients need to continue those drugs for a lifetime. We, we did speak about the role for MRI, like you said, in myocarditis, role for echo imaging, strain imaging. You even mentioned using MAGA uh, in these patients. Any other, because uh, car- cardiac imaging and cardiotoxicity, there's so much overlap as well. Any other upcoming or ongoing excitement about other modalities in these patients as well for, for cardiac imaging? There are a lot of studies that are going on right now regarding different imaging modalities. I would say that one of them would be with coronary CT. And particularly as we talk about prevention, there's a recent study that looked at the looked at coronary artery classification and showed that the amount of the dose of radiation that goes to each individual coronary artery correlates with the amount of calcium that's seen in that coronary artery. And we don't really have much data on when or if to start statins in patients who've had radiation therapy besides recommending that they're evaluated as the general population. And in the study, 34 or 32 to 34 months on average after patients had received radiation was when calcification was being noted. So I think that in the future, as a community and as a field, we'll have to come together with doing some studies, doing more research, and creating consensus statements, scientific statements, guidelines about when and how to really evaluate these patients. Sky came up with a very nice algorithm that was originally created by Dr. Jörg Herman. Sky has an algorithm for when to screen patients who've had drugs or radiation that can lead to ischemia, for example. And so starting five years after individuals have had radiation therapy, they should consider having stress testing every five to ten years and thinking about how we can potentially preempt advanced coronary artery disease. Perhaps if we can do studies with the coronary artery calcification, we might be able to have that as a mechanism for picking up subclinical coronary artery disease sooner and perhaps even more cheaply and non-invasively and without needing to exert any energy. But of course, we want patients to recognize that lifelong lifestyle modification is super helpful for preventing cardiovascular disease. And PET is also being considered to be used in different ways as part of uh, nuclear cardiology or nuclear cardio-oncology, I guess we could say. So echo is useful, MRI is useful, nuclear studies are useful, cardiac CT is useful. All of these play a role not only in managing cardiovascular toxicity, but also in prevention, detection, screening, and surveillance. And so it's pretty exciting to be in the field at this time, although I've been planning to do this for over 10 years since I was a medical student. It's an exciting time because, as you mentioned, there's so much interest, so much engagement as we move forward together. Certainly, there's such a strong need for expertise in this matter because... One that I didn't mention 
when I mentioned the MRI and we talked about echo and strain, and of course, whenever we mention strain, we have to point out the fact that not everyone is a huge fan of it yet because we're still looking for huge studies like with the core cell. But even with strain with the echo, strain on MRI is also being looked at for cardiomyopathy. And there's a lot of great information, a huge signal that that might be very useful for us in detecting early changes subclinically and even being able to prevent EF decline. And so we want to make sure that we mention that because that's an up-and-coming area as well. Those are such great points on, on all the different imaging techniques and integrating them to come up with the best uh, answer. Now, once you diagnose these patients and you've treated them with neurohormonal blockade agents, but they have a persistent cardiomyopathy, is there any role for using ICD therapy or CRT therapy in these patients? Yes, great question, as usual. So there's another recent study, the MADE-IT-T trial. And again, this is one of the reasons it's so exciting to be having this conversation right now because we can say there's been a recent study versus we don't know. So there's been a recent study, the MADE-IT-T trial, and in that study, individuals who, in whom CRTD was indicated received CRTD and many of us wonder if it would make a difference given that we think of the cardiomyopathy from anthracycline to be irreversible when we think about what the underlying pathophysiology is. We think, is there really any way to recruit myocardium? Is there really any way that synchrony could really make a difference? And the only way to know that for sure is to study it. And so a group within the community of cardiology studied this and found that when patients received the CRTD, there was an improvement in the EF. And it was such a great study to see the results of and know that that's one more tool we have in our toolbox that we can use. That sounds uh, like very promising data. Now, moving on to radiation therapy, uh, we spoke about it in the second episode in the series in more detail. We have a whole episode for it. But talking about management of the radiation-induced cardiac disease, could you share uh, your some pointers and some pearls on this phenomenon? Sure. So we keep talking about how cardiovascular toxicity can manifest in so many ways, and radiation is one of those ways that gives you everything. And so for the heart, you can have acute pericarditis, Within the first six months to a year of radiation therapy, and that's usually due to inflammation, you can have chronic pericarditis that will happen more over the long term that can lead to constriction. And often if the symptoms of constriction or the signs are severe, the patients might need pericardectomy for resolution of those symptoms of constriction. You can also have myocardial disease. You can have most obstructive cardiomyopathy, which can lead to diastolic left ventricular dysfunction and can leave patients being quite symptomatic. And they, in the end, what they might end up needing is heart transplant. And so it's not an easy sort of adverse effect to experience or to treat for these patients. You can have valvular heart disease, and most 
it can be either stenosis or regurgitation, and you can have both. And you can have the aortic valve involved, the mitral valve involved. When you're looking at the echo and you see thickening of the valve and you see even fibrosis of the aortic mitral curtain, that's when you have a very high suspicion that you know you're dealing with radiation and heart disease. When you see stenosis, regurgitation, restrictive cardiomyopathy, you know that there's something going on. And this is not your typical valvular heart disease. When these patients then might undergo TAVR, for example, they tend to not do quite as well as other patients who might have aortic stenosis. And it's similar, too, for ischemia. When patients undergo PCI, they tend to have a poor uh, prognosis as well than for patients who didn't have a history of radiation leading to their ischemia. You can also have conduction disease, as we briefly mentioned, you can have arrhythmias, you can have bradycardia. As part of that, you can have atrial fibrillation. And so no part of the heart is immune to radiation therapy. And if you think about where mantle radiation occurs, where it would cover the top part of the heart in the highest area of the radiation dose, you also have the base of the heart in that high radiation dose. And so you can have calcification of the ascending aorta. And often if you see calcification of the ascending aorta, but the rest of the aorta looks fine, then you think about whether the patient had radiation therapy. And then if the calcification is severe, that's the porcelain aorta that creates some challenges for patients who might need cardiovascular surgery because of needing to clamp the aorta. So then that needs to be thought about how to do that differently, or whether surgery is feasible. So sometimes if a patient has a need for pericardectomy and they need to have aorta clamps and they need to have cabbage, all of these things can be issues at the same time in the same patient who might also need a vasopathy. And so it's very important to have the heart team have these discussions together in shared decision-making with the patient. The cardiologist, the cardiac surgeon, the oncologist, primary care, the pharmacist, all of these folks having this conversation with the patient to determine the best way to go. In terms of monitoring and surveillance for radiation-induced heart disease, we talked a little bit about stress testing every five to ten years. We talked about considering coronary artery calcification. And in addition, we think about other vascular beds. We think about whether to do... ABI, we think about whether to do carotid artery testing. That's more often if there's some radiation in those fields or if patients have been on drugs that can cause arterial thromboembolism or other forms of ischemia. Primarily for radiation, we think about the stress testing and the coronary artery calcification. But wherever the radiation has met, so for mantle therapy, Often the carotid might be involved, and so you do want to do carotid coverage as well. So just as with the medication, knowing the medication helps us to know what kind of cardiovascular toxicity to expect, and that guides our monitoring, surveillance, and testing. It's similar for radiation. And so when the patient got radiation makes a difference. The newer modalities for radiation using deep inspiration breath holds or prone imaging or proton versus photon radiation, those all make a difference. And so with the CT planning, with the treatment planning over the years in radiation oncology, because of that, you have 
tangential radiation now instead of the mantle radiation. And so knowing when the patient received therapy, how long ago it was, what kind of therapy it was, helps us to determine what sorts of cardiovascular toxicity to expect and thereby what sort of therapy to do. Because I completely agree our goal is prevention, early detection, not just management. And for me, that's a huge thrill to be able to have prevention of heart disease be a great part of what I do in cardio-oncology. And we talked about how patients, we have to think about whether they should be treated with SAVR, with SAVR, with PCI, but knowing that overall they generally do worse than their counterparts who haven't had radiation or other forms of cancer therapy. Talk to my residents and trainees about when they give me a history for cancer, I expect a lot more. I'm like, I need to know what chemotherapy, when, how many rounds of chemotherapy, whether they received radiation, how long ago, what type. It's short to get all that information, but it's so important to have a very good understanding of all the risk factors for these patients. This, is, this was a great review on all the different things and, and why it's so important to know. Absolutely. You know, when you think about the risk for radiation-induced heart disease, there's so much overlap with the risk for chemotherapy-induced heart disease, whether it's the young, whether it's the age, or whether it's the amount of the dose that they've gotten, whether there's a CVD risk factors or known CVD, and so it's important to be able to take a really good past medical history as well, and also get those risk factors under control before therapy, during therapy, after therapy, because the risk with radiation never really goes away. I thought I'd leave the last topic for today for some of the newest drugs, the immune checkpoint inhibitors, which have, to a great degree, changed the field of oncology. And we've been finding more and more cardiovascular toxicity so I thought I'd maybe let you uh, maybe give us some some of your experience and, and some of the data on myocarditis. Having the immune checkpoint inhibitors is a great tool for our patients. And most often, cardiotoxicity is seen when combination therapy is used. There are first-generation inhibitors, second-generation inhibitors, next-gen inhibitors that are currently being studied or going through FDA, and there's so many. And what's been found is you use a combination of first and second generation, then that's when myocarditis might be more likely to be seen. It just means that more commonly we see it with combination therapy. And that's why we have just to monitor and screen so closely in the first week and up to that first month because, again, it's 30 to 35 days in which usually the myocarditis will manifest. And generally, looking at the different studies, maybe 0.06% to 2.4%. So maybe 0.06% to 2.4% might be a prevalence that might be quoted. And as we're studying this more and more, we're seeing that there's more than we thought in the beginning, in part because of how the studies or how the adjudication happens in trials. If a patient has a change on the ECG in the past that may not necessarily have been thought of immediately as myocarditis, but we're recognizing how that it is because that is a form of how myocarditis will start to manifest. And so over time, we see that the prevalence might even increase, not only because we're using more and more drugs that created, but because of how we're identifying and detecting and diagnosing 
the myocarditis. And so it's important to know the higher risk of combination therapy. It's important to know that myocarditis can affect the conduction system. It can manifest in different ways. Patients can have what seems to be nonspecific symptoms or nonspecific changes on the EKG, but we have a suspicion to look at the troponin, look at the EKG, maybe the BNP, maybe the echo, and if we really think it's what's going on, we have to do, we have to think about doing the MRI and if necessary, then the biopsy. Because when a myocarditis occurs, even though it's not as rare as we thought, it can be fulminant. And so we have to be ready to use high-dose steroids. We have to be ready to have our patients cared for an intensive care unit. We have to be ready to interrupt the treatment in order to save a patient's life. One last question on immune checkpoint inhibitors. It can be a life-saving therapy for several cancer patients or prolonging life in several cancers. Among patients who respond to therapies but suffer from these life-threatening complications, is there any role for re-challenging these patients with immune checkpoint inhibitors, let's say once they've recovered from their fulminant myocarditis episode because the cancer is still around? Recognizing that the most dangerous side effect from immune checkpoint inhibitors is fulminant myocarditis, but knowing that you can have other manifestations such as pericardial disease, vasculitis, tachycubo, atherosclerotic lesions being destabilized because of vasculitis, you can have VTE, conduction issues, but fulminant myocarditis is definitely the one that's most dangerous, most feared. And that is the double-edged sword that we have in cardio-oncology, and that's why we exist. It is because the drugs that are hoped to help the patients sometimes end up hurting the patients. And that's where we come in to help to figure out how to protect them from that hurt. And so thinking through what might be risk factors, we know combination therapy is one. What else is there? And so those are the, under, the studies that are being undergone to help us figure that out. Is it with age? Is it with underlying factors? Is it with genomics? And so precision medicine can play a huge role here as well. And so it's so important to think about that in shared decision-making with patients, knowing that most patients don't have adverse effects, but you could have an adverse effect. But the good thing is that if there is, we have the partnership between oncology and cardiology. We have steroids. We have the CCU. And we have support like a tablet and we have studies and trials that can now be undergone to determine how to treat it. But of course, the biggest thing is how to prevent it. And so I think that precision medicine will play a huge role there. There is a, a particular variant in CTLA-4, and we know that one of the types of immune checkpoint inhibitors, CTLA-4 inhibitors, and there's a particular variant that associates with different sorts of autoimmune conditions, and those autoimmune conditions are often similar to what we see in patients that have adverse effects of different sorts throughout the body when treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors. And so in a paper that's currently in revision, there's a thought that perhaps it might be such variants in some individuals that might help to explain why some people have the adverse effects and some don't. But again, precision medicine isn't 
mainstream or prime time yet in cardio-oncology, but it's something to think about. It's something I've enjoyed thinking about over the years and thinking about once we have more data, how can we implement this in the clinic? And I would say that for patients undergoing immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy, that would be a prime population to consider using precision medicine. And so hopefully everyone would enjoy reading that paper when it comes out soon. Yeah, and we'll look forward to it. I thought I'd end with a couple of questions. You really have me convinced that there's a great need for this expertise, the, the cardio-oncology. I mean, as a heart failure cardiologist, like you said, I'm already dealing with other aspects of cardiology which are developing rapidly. In your opinion, I would say probably here, it, it do all centers need to have a cardio-oncologist? How do we organize care for cancer patients where expertise like yourself is available? Absolutely. I think that many centers don't have a cardio-oncology program because the field is emerging and many folks don't actually know the intricacies of what's involved in cardio-oncology. It is true that the most common form of cardiovascular toxicity is heart failure from anthracycline, so that's what most people are familiar with, and that is taken care of in heart failure centers. With the additional drugs in cardio-oncology that can have manifestations involving ischemia, the valve, the conduction system, the pericardium, to have a role for individuals who might be specialists in pericardial disease or valvular heart disease or ischemia. And so having a cardio-oncology program can help to be a central place for patients who are having toxicities that affect various parts of the cardiovascular system. And then the cardio-oncologist can have expertise in all of these areas for these patients, but can also call on expertise outside of the cardio-oncology program so that the patient can get the optimal care the more advanced their disease is. And so even if there's a cardio-oncology program because there's such a breadth of toxicity and drug therapy in cardio-oncology and because there are so many survivors, which is a fantastic thing, at the same time, it's great to also partner with additional kinds of specialists outside of the cardio-oncology program. And so partnering with you guys for LVAD and heart transplant, for folks who have really advanced cardiomyopathy, whether it's dilated cardiomyopathy or whether it's restrictive cardiomyopathy, recognizing that at some point, the drugs will only go so far, other treatments will only go so far. And if the patients have cardiomyopathy from myocarditis, then that also has to be a consideration. Or cardiomyopathy from immune checkpoint inhibitors, I should say, because you can have that in the absence of noted myocarditis. And so I think it's so important to have folks who are the experts in LVAD, the experts in heart transplant, be a part of the conversation in advanced cardiomyopathy because that's also part of what we have in our toolbox that we can use for the care of these patients. And so I think, yes, over time, I suspect we will see every institution in the country having a cardio-oncology program over time, I would predict that we would see almost every institution in the country having cardio-oncology fellowship training, whether that's part of the general fellowship or whether that's its own dedicated fellowship, for example, for a year. And I suspect and expect 
that the various sub subspecialty areas within cardiology partner more with our cardio oncology programs so that patients can have an understanding of these advanced therapies that may be available to them and that we can have more studies to determine what the best pathway is as we offer these patients LVAD and heart transplant and advanced disease. Thank you so much for that very thoughtful response, Sherry. Thank you so much for your time and covering all these extensive topics within this field. Before we let you go, any last-minute pointers, plugs for our audience? I would say that folks are interested in engaging even more in cardio-oncology should really reach out. Reach out to your local program, whether you're a med student, resident, fellow, early career, future career, whether you're a nurse practitioner, PA, radiation technologist, whether you're a respiratory therapist, we all play a role in the patient's care. And so anyone at all interested in cardio-oncology, reach out to the local programs, go to the conferences, learn more, reach out to the national societies, go to the national courses. And if you're on social media, reach out to us there as well. And look at the literature. Look at the literature on the different kinds of cardiovascular toxicity. The more we learn on our own, the more we can learn together, the more we can help our patients together. And recognizing, too, that when we look at publications, it doesn't only have to be the typical scientific or medical article, but we can also look at other things that can make a difference in our own lives and also in the patient's lives. We talked about earlier one of my loves being poetry, and I've really enjoyed writing poetry about medicine, about science, and I've been enjoying writing poetry about cardio-oncology as well. And so what I want to leave you with is one of those poems. If you want to look it up online, it's called Protecting a Woman's Heart in Oncology Times. It was published May 5th, 2019, Volume 41, Issue 9 on page 37. And so I'll read it briefly for you. The breast cries, Oh, my love, I am grieved that I hurt you. I am supposed to protect you, not injure you. I am outside of you. I am over you. I am around you. I am to shield you. Yet the cancer cells in me are so unrelenting. I need surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation. I don't mean to hurt you with the rays and the portion. The heart cries, No, my love. When you see the hurt in me, it is because I reach out and wrap myself around you to protect you. I cannot myself take the cancer from you, but I can wrap myself around you to hold and comfort you and shield you from the damage of radiation and chemotherapy. I know the rays and potions are meant to cure you, but I know they can also hurt the healthy parts of you. If you hurt, I hurt. If you heal, I heal. I don't want you to hurt alone. It is my honor to hurt with you. It is my honor to hurt for you. The best response. No, my love. Do not hurt for me. Do not hurt with me. Let me hurt without you. For my hurt is temporary and I will heal. I fear your hurt is irreversible and you may not heal. If I cannot protect you, let me introduce you to someone who will. The heart responds. Yes, my love. Introduce me. Let me meet our cardio-oncologist. Show me the way to our preventive cardiologist. 
show me a most excellent way to protect a woman's heart. So I hope that poem helps people understand some of the ways that we think about balance as we talk about between the medications and the side effects. The medications that are meant to help often sometimes end up hurting. And that's where we come in as cardiologists, as preventive cardiologists, to try to prevent and manage the injury to the cardiovascular system. And I look forward to continuing to engage with everyone on Twitter. I am Dr. Brown Cares, Dr. Brown Cares, and I'm also at drbrowncares.com. And if people enjoy such poetry, there's another poem called The Healer Speaks. That's about a conversation between the patient and the physician for our own self-care. And then I'll be publishing some poetry in books. I can't say how helpful this has been to me as a means of expressing my thoughts about cardio-oncology, about medicine. And I hope that some of you who are listening might recognize that you have some talents too that you've been buried because you feel that they don't fit into medicine, but they do. So share your talents with all of us so that we can all grow together. That was a beautiful poem. I couldn't think of a better way to end this episode. And I'm certain we'll get to talk again when there's more updates in cardio-oncology. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the concluding episode in our series on cardio-oncology. Hope you really liked it. I did get some good feedback on bringing in oncologists and radiation oncologists into this conversation. So I think in future series, you will be seeing a lot more of that, hearing from, from people and folks in other specialties especially in their area of expertise. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to like, subscribe, and give us a high rating, as it helps other listeners find us. You can leave your suggestions for topics, critiques, things you think we can do better. You can email us at heartsuccessteam at gmail.com. You can actually find us on our website at www.heartsuccess.info. Our website now also provides links to all the podcast providers where you can listen to this episode. You can find us on our Facebook page at heartsuccessteam, or you can always reach me on Twitter at cardiobro. <laughs>